As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show Weekend Review. On today's show, we aim to have more presence than the North London derby, more effectiveness than Chelsea in that final third, more detail than an Everton statement about firing their manager, and we'll get to grips with things a little bit better than an Ivory Coast goalkeeper. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who's currently campaigning for all MLS games to be shown on Nickelodeon. Hello, Graham Ruffin. <laughs> Hello, Ryan Bailey. I mean, yes, uh, why would we not? want MLS games to be on Nickelodeon that looked like the best fun ever last night the slime monster and Spongebob and yeah I want that in MLS please yeah so this is the Cowboys 49ers playoff game on Sunday I switched it on last night Graham on Sunday night I should say uh, and was confused when on CBS they kept talking about we're showing it on Nickelodeon as well and it, it was just like gunge tanks gunge monsters lots of gunge because 1990s I suppose Graham that was the reason yeah because reasons I mean, that's that's good enough for me. I mean, MLS is already the most chaotic league in the world, so let's just add more chaos to, to the equation, I say. Yeah, get it on Nickelodeon. That should be... I know MLS has got a new TV deal coming up this year, so I'm expecting Nickelodeon to be cut in one way or another. Get it on Nick. The other thing from that, uh, that NFL game, Graham, I don't know if you caught it, but it was at Cowboys Stadium, and yeah. one of the punts hit the scoreboard. I saw the that. giant, I think it's like 60 yards long scoreboard at that stadium. Um, and it reminded me, I don't know if you remember this, Graham, like... Many years ago, Chelsea played a preseason game there, and there's footage. I think it's on YouTube somewhere of all the players in the warm-up just trying to hit it, like all just <laughs> launching balls at this thing. And they got me thinking, you know, that's going to happen professionally at some point. And I'm pretty sure it happened in a soccer game as well. What a disaster! Yeah, I mean, it seemed like the Cowboys were being thwarted by their own two billion dollar stadium between hitting the sco- the the video board above them, and then also I think the kickers were being blinded by the sun out the other side of the stadium mm-hmm. through the windows. So. Yeah, maybe uh, design your stadium a little bit better. Yeah, maybe just build another billion-dollar stadium where it doesn't go from east to west yeah, and just next have door. a giant... Yeah, yeah, just in the It'll be fine. There's loads of room in Texas. It's all good. Uh, also here, Graham, is a man who lives in a warm, arid desert, but unlike FIFA president Gianni Infantino, he doesn't live in Qatar. It's Arizona Joe Lowry. Oh, Ryan, you don't know it yet, but I actually made my own move to Qatar over the weekend. So uh, oh. the time zone's all wacky. I'm still trying to adjust, but things are... 
No, I, I didn't do that. Johnny Infantino <laughs> moving to Qatar does not feel like a coincidence and really doesn't feel like it can lead to anything good. But something that I do think is good, Ryan, is how low you set the bar for us on this show, being more effective than Chelsea in the final third, <laughs> doing a better job than Sangare, the Ivory Coast goalkeeper. Uh, all of those things I'm really confident that we can do. I can't wait. They were all subpar things, Joe. I was just setting us at par. I think that's acceptable yes, for us. Don't great. You think? I can work yeah. with that. That's the range that I think we thrive in, guys. <laughs> Definitely so. And the range that uh, Infantino is thriving in is somewhere in Doha at the moment, according to the Swiss outlet Blick. <laughs> Um, he now lives there. He has done since October. Two of his kids even go to school there. So it's not necess- it, it's probably something to do with the World Cup, which is happening there very soon. But um, he's definitely putting down some roots there. All seems very above board and totally cool to me because FIFA conducts his business from... Qatar via Switzerland now, Joe. Wonderful. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah great. I think you I think you just described the entire 2022 World Cup and all the issues surrounding that. Not just Johnny Infantino, but maybe he's just a microcosm of what we're all trying to parse through for November and December. Ryan, I, I, I think you're onto something. And also, I think I'm sad on a Monday morning. I'm not really sure what's going on right now. Oh, I'm sorry about the sadness, Joe, but at least you don't have East Coast snow to deal with, as many it's of true. our friends do on the East Coast, including Mr. Taylor Rockwell. He has snow that precludes him from joining us today. And you know what, Graham? It's a good job we're not Arsenal Football Club because if we had a man down, we'd have to postpone our podcast today. <laughs> hey, hey, right, right. Oh, topical, topical. See what you did there. <laughs> Yes, today we're going to be talking about the Africa Cup of Nations, the Spanish Super Cup and much more. But why don't we start, as I led us there, into the Premier League. Um, Why don't we start, Graham, with the game that didn't happen in the Premier League. Tottenham versus Arsenal, the one we were all looking forward to on Sunday. Cancelled with Arsenal having one Covid case at the time, Martin Odegaard. Another was revealed subsequently. Uh, But not enough players to field in their team through injury, suspension and international duty. 15 first team players were absent for Arsenal, including players at AFCON and Granit Xhaka on suspension, although apparently his suspension was not included in the consideration when the Premier League cancelled this. Graham, it does seem like a bit of a problem. Postponement rules have been a little bit abused in this circumstance. Arsenal were not the first ones to be guilty of this, and you could argue, uh, as Mika Richards did on the TV, that they've done nothing wrong, they followed the rules to the letter, but the rules are a bit of a problem. Yeah, absolutely. I I think um, a lot of the time Arsenal are, are an easy target for fans, and I'm not quite sure why they seem to be getting more heat than other clubs that have misused this this rule. And it was made to look even more ridiculous by the fact that Leeds, who had similar issues, you know, they go to West Ham, they have a bench full of uh, teenagers and players who have never played for the senior first team before, and they get a win, you know, a 3-2 win away to West Ham. So it does it does feel um, like the, real, the rules are being misused, as you say. When you factor in injuries and international call-ups, should those really be... A, in the equation, I'm I'm not so sure. I think maybe you, you call up a few kids, you maybe expand the registration rules slightly so you can get more players in your squad. But um, yeah, it feels like the Premier League has set a precedent. Obviously, the trouble now is if you change the rules, then clubs that um, experience the same problems that Arsenal have at, at the weekend there with the North, North London Derby, then that would be seen to be unfair. You know, that Arsenal have been allowed to request a postponement and then other clubs in the future wouldn't be able to. But um, yeah, they've dug themselves a bit of a hole that's difficult to get out of. They have indeed. Hopefully they do get out of it because we can't have this continuing. Joe, we had a few hours to spare on Sunday because of this uh, game not being on. We were all uh, planning to watch it, of course. Uh, What did you get up to? Arizona things? Did you go on a hike? Did you go to like a Republican meeting? I don't know what else people do in Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) Republican meeting. All of those things do happen, certainly. I actually went and my my girlfriend was running a half marathon yesterday. And so I went. I was going to watch her either way, but uh, I went and, and didn't need to worry about fitting in the North London Derby as well. 
and she ran all of those 13.1 miles, Ryan. Not a not a full marathon like you yourself have done, but man, super impressive and way further than I could ever run. Congratulations to her, Joe. Were they vertical miles? Because I've done a lot of <laughs> vertical miles at that place you live in. No, they were mostly flat, thankfully. We were down in, in Phoenix, so not too much of the up and down mountainy stuff. When you when you say you, you watched her run a half marathon, were you, were you just standing at the side clapping, or did you have like a, <laughs> like a scooter or your, uh, one of the Nagelsmann longboards behind her? Just oh, that her would have been perfect, Graham. The fact, the fact that I didn't come in with a Julian Nagelsmann longboard is my mistake. But no, me and a, and a couple other people would get in the car, and we would race to, well, we would drive to one place, stop, get out, watch her, and then drive, get back in the car, drive, go back to someplace else. We made it to four spots along the race and then the, the finish as well. So we caught a, a pretty impressive amount, if I do say so myself. There was a lot of planning that went into coordinating our route to uh, to go along with hers. I've got to say, Joe, that sounds like the perfect Joe Lowry activity, to plan <laughs> and to schedule and to, and to work out the tactics of getting from one spot to the other while um, you know finding out the average pace of your partner. Oh, I, I imagine you had a wild time doing that. The thing is, Ryan, I actually did none of the planning, thankfully. Weirdly, I... My my attention to detail at times doesn't really extend over to areas of my personal life. Um, and so I was thankful to just be a part of it and being told where to go and where to drive and get all of the directions. But, yeah, it does feel like it goes right along with me digging into City and Chelsea and AFCON and all of those things. <laughs> well, let's get back on track on that note, Joseph. Uh, Aston Villa on Saturday drawing 2-2 in Manchester United. An 81st-minute equaliser coming from new boy Philippe Coutinho. Gra- Coutinho? Coutinho, Graham. His first <laughs> Premier League goal since Boxing Day 2017. I'm put off by thinking about uh, marathon planning now. Sorry, Graham, but did you catch this game? <laughs> I did. And I also saw that Philippe Coutinho now has eight, or has had a direct hand, has been directly involved in 18 goals in his last 18 Premier League games. Um, obviously split over four years. <laughs> so I'm not sure how much use that uh, particular statistic is. But yeah, I, I tweeted just before mine had collapsed that they were playing better without Ronaldo and Maguire. And obviously that then backfired and Taylor blamed me directly for that. And I will accept the blame. <laughs> So you should. Anthony Martinel not accepting any blame for reportedly uh, being uh, asked for reportedly asking not to be included in this game. He has subsequently denied that on his stories on his IG. Uh, Liverpool went into second place. They leapfrogged over Chelsea with a three 0 win over Brentford. Uh, Firmino, the Ox, and Minamino getting the goals there. Um, we saw some bad goalkeeping this weekend, Graham, but some pretty horrendous goalkeeping for Minamino's goal. Did you catch that one? I didn't actually. What what happened there? Uh, it was basically the goalkeeper let the ball go and let the ball go into the path of Minamino, who did a, you know, it, it was, um, no, it was like a playing out the back situation, basically. Right, okay. And I the was, goalkeeper I was... had, like, he had three defenders in his own box. He could have made a pass to any one of them and didn't. Right. It was, it was a hoof out the field situation. Should have hoofed it, didn't hoof it, essentially. I planned on watching the Liverpool game, but then it very quickly became apparent that West Ham Leeds was the much better game. <laughs> and so uh, that really took up much of my focus on, on Sunday. But uh, well, I'll take your word for it. Not the best goalkeeping. Well, let's talk about that one. The most bonkers game of the weekend of all probably going there. West Ham 2 leads 3. A hat-trick from Jack Harrison there, Graham, uh, helping Leeds pull away from the relegation zone. And as you mentioned, having a thin squad, but still plucking a few teenagers from the bench uh, for some uh, some classic Bielsa soccer. Yeah, and, and this was the best I've seen Leeds play in a long time. As you say there, Jack Harrison grabbing a hat-trick. For me, he wasn't even the most impressive player on the pitch. I thought that was Rafinha. I thought he had probably the best game I've, I've ever seen him have. He's obviously a player that we've spoken about before. He seems to be getting better and better for Leeds to the point where 
Leeds and Bielsa are getting asked questions all the time about his future. Could he leave this month? There were obviously reports that Bayern Munich were going to sign him. He's been linked with Liverpool. I think if that situation with Salah drags on any longer and if he leaves Liverpool, I, I can see a situation where he would be a good replacement for Salah at Liverpool. I think he is probably the best player outside the, the big six clubs in the Premier League at the yeah. moment. And he was... He was amazing in this game. He actually only ends up with one assist, but he he has a, another brilliant assist chalked off for a, a very marginal and unfortunate offside where Rodrigo is is on the line. I think it was Klich that, that finished it and the ball kind of clips off um, Rodrigo on the line. It was going into the back of an empty net anyway and he was offside, so it was ruled out. That was very unfortunate. And then he also smashed the woodwork with a, with a free kick as well. So he was hugely impressive in that match. He's so, so good. Every time I watch Leeds, I come away really impressed with a few different players, but Rafinha really the first among them. When you go and look at his game, when you watch film of him, you see, man, this guy's incredibly skillful on the ball. He's a really impactful attacking player, but he doesn't just do that work. And the reason why he's in this team under Bielsa is he'll also do the defensive work. He'll run, he'll chase the ball down. And oftentimes you don't get a lot of those qualities mixed into the same high-powered attacking player nowadays, really ever in the history of soccer. And so having someone who will do work on both sides of the ball in a lot of different phases is so important to how this Leeds team plays. And when eventually he does get a move to a different club, to a higher-level club somewhere in Europe, it's going to be impactful for, for whatever that next club is too. You go and look at Rafinha's FB Ref page, and on those, these are super helpful for players in, in a lot of the leagues in Europe. They have little scouting reports, and they've got uh, a graph that displays, it's a chart really, that displays how effective this player is at any given thing. On Rafinha's graph... 80% of the, the items listed are green, are, are up in the top percentiles of any attacking midfielder or winger in Europe's top five leagues. And that completely gels with what you see when you watch Rafinha Graham. I completely agree. He is, if not the best player outside of the top six, one of certainly the best player outside, best players outside of the top six in the Premier League. He is just incredible to watch. Well, we saw one of the Premier League's best free kick takers do his thing this weekend as well. Uh, James Ward-Prowse getting an absolute worldie in Wall Street, Southampton 1. Listener, if you haven't seen that, I recommend you check it out. Um, I did some tweeting over the weekend and about the 87th minute of uh, Newcastle against Watford, <laughs> tweeting that both Newcastle and Norwich are going to win on this historic Saturday. And literally maybe four seconds later, Graham, uh, <laughs> an equaliser came in for Watford from João Pedro. Um, still only one win for Newcastle, but um, Burnley at bottom, but they played three fewer games. So not looking good for the uh, for the rich Newcastle Newcastleians. Is that a word? Is now. Uh, it is now, yeah. <laughs> Jordies is normally what they're called. That's the one. <laughs> Um, and also Norwich getting a win, as I mentioned, their 2-1 win over Everton. Uh, the cost, Rafa Benitez, his job. Um, Everton firing off a very terse message uh, afterwards, and he putting one on his own website as well. He was fired uh, the following day after 200 days in charge. Um, and now Mad seeking their sixth manager in six years, Graham. Seems like maybe the manager isn't the problem at Everton, given everything that's going on there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, their, their owner, Fahad uh, Moshiri, he has spent over, I think, £500 million since he took that club over. And what does he have to show for it? Absolutely nothing. I mean, the stadium seems like it will be the new stadium that's getting um, built down by the docks. That will be a bit of a legacy for him. But in terms of the team on the pitch, they've, they've regressed since he has taken over, which is quite incredible given the amounts that they have spent. I think the Benitez appointment 
has to be one of the most disastrous in Premier League history. He was unpopular from the start. He gutted the club's sporting department. Marcel Brands left, and Marcel Brands um, didn't really do a good job either, but basically I'm saying that Everton sided with the manager over the director of football. Brands left, the head of medical left. They sold Luca Dina three days before Benitez was sacked after he fell out with the manager, and he was one of the, the, the club's best players and certainly one of their most valuable assets. I think they're the worst run club in the Premier League at the moment and now they're about to hire uh, Roberto Martinez which doesn't really make sense in any regard why does he want to go back in a World Cup year with Belgium why do they want him back why Everton why explain these decisions please <laughs> so many whys so little time we'll see, we shall see how it unfolds at Everton but in the meantime why don't we head to our main game we're going to cover from the Premier League from the weekend Manchester City 1 Chelsea nil. the champions of England taking on the champions of Europe here um, Chelsea had the opportunity to close the 10 point gap at the top of the table they failed to do so a 12 straight win for Manchester City Kevin De Bruyne's revenge we could call this not only for Mourinho freezing him out at Chelsea but for the Champions League final where he was taken out of action in fairly violent circumstances. Joe, um, this game felt a lot like the other recent games between these two sides, the Champions League final, perhaps the FA Cup game last season, where it was Man City dominating possession, but unable to break down Chelsea's pretty well-organised defence, a back five, if you will. I'm calling it elite-level bus parking. I don't know if you'll agree with that. But, um, but the difference was, in those previous games, Joe, was that City got undone on the counter-attack. And that didn't happen in this game. So I'm focusing my attention on the final third of the field for Chelsea here. I think that's fair in a lot of senses. Ryan, I agree with a lot of your analysis here. Chelsea did some really nice expert bus parking, and they've become really good at that. A lot of teams in, in Europe, especially the elite teams, have become very good at that constricting space when they don't have the ball. It's become the next evolution, certainly, of, of the City team. And I think we saw it from both City and Chelsea in this game depending on the game state. So, yeah, there was a lot of defensive compactness in this game, and almost every team tries to do that when they're up against Manchester City. I, I think a lot of the challenges, Ryan, to your point, that Chelsea faced in this game was were self-imposed, right? They got the ball, and they didn't have a ton of touches, especially in that first half. One of the things I had down in my notes is Chelsea were defensively compact and effective defensively for large stretches of this game, but they were struggling to get on the ball really until they went 1-0 down. And so they, they were struggling to get on the ball when they did get the ball after defending really resolutely in that block. They would attack quickly, and it it broke down. And Tuchel talked about this in the in the post-match press conference. He talked about how the execution wasn't there from a lot of his players. Christian Pulisic on the right side of this front three, great to see him getting minutes in a game like this, but he would get on the ball, drive forward, and then end up just passing the ball backwards. And, and part of mm -hmm. that, I, I think I place a little bit of blame there on him. I also place a little bit of blame on the lack of structure around him as Chelsea transitioned forward. Lukaku had a couple of sloppy touches. Tuchel mentioned that after the game as well. How they need more out of him. He didn't get a lot of service in this game, which is a problem. And when he did get the ball, he wasn't especially sharp with it. And, and the couple of chances he had didn't find the back of the net, which is excusable to a certain extent because they weren't these really high-quality chances. Hakim Zayek wasn't especially effective on the left side. We didn't see Mason Mount until really late on in this game. Kalamutz and Adoy comes off the bench, and he doesn't have a huge impact either. Chelsea struggled when they got on the ball and when they put, when they when they tried to play forward. Kovacic had some impact driving the ball forward and, and playing Lukaku in behind, but it wasn't enough in this game. City did enough when they had the ball to limit Chelsea's counterattacking chances, and Chelsea did enough to limit their own effectiveness in counterattacking chances. 
that it made it really hard to see a path through for Chelsea getting three points and maybe even one point in this game. Graham, what did you make of Chelsea's front line here? Let's put the attention on Romelu Lukaku for a second. Mm-hmm. As Joe says, he, did, uh, he didn't have much service. He had less service than when Joe's hiking up in Sedona on his hey, cell phone. Hey. Arizona joke. <laughs> Arizona joke comes in once again. But, you know, didn't get a lot of service here. And I, I think his decision-making was problematic at certain times. But there was that moment where early on in the game, I think he put the ball off to the right for Ziyech when he was yeah. clearly in an offside position. He had Alonso free on his left. And, uh, you know, for, for, all, for all the faults here, how much blame do we put on Lukaku for this performance? And how much, Graham, on Thomas Tuchel and his use of Romelu Lukaku? Look pretty isolated here. He's being used as kind of the hold-up man. It felt a lot like Man United Lukaku and sure. that little had been learned from that exercise. This is becoming a season-defining issue for Chelsea. Of course, we've, we've spoken about the, the interview and all the fallout that came from that and him missing a, a Premier League match. Here, the problems were, as you referenced there, Ryan, they were all on the pitch. And there just seems to be a disconnect between Lukaku and his teammates. He spent a lot of this match pointing where he wanted the ball, he wanted it in behind, and he very rarely received it. Um, There just seems to be a real lack of chemistry in that Chelsea front line, which perhaps isn't surprising given that Tuchel has tried 11 different attacking combinations this season. So that is that is a, a consequence of that. He doesn't know who his best attackers are. I think he seems to be quite frustrated. I might have read this in The Athletic that none of his attackers really seem to be nailing down a position. Even if he had one uh, attacker who was really performing, he could build around that attacker. And Chelsea don't don't have that player. In, in this sense, talking about the, the amount of rotation that has happened in that front line, I do have some sympathy for Lukaku. Um, I also have sympathy in that he's been asked to play in a way that we all know doesn't get the best out of him, as you say, Ryan. This is very similar to how Manchester United played played him. Mourinho wanted him to be a, an orthodox front man who you hit with crosses and long balls forward. You you ask him to hold, him, hold it up and you play it off him. And that just isn't where Lukaku's strengths are. And we saw it at Inter where Conte got him running towards goal. He got him spun and into space and with the ball at his feet. And Lukaku at Inter would even play on the wings. And for Belgium as well, is where you often see the best of Lukaku under Martinez, he will often play him on the right wing because he knows that he's a ball carrier and that's where he's at his best. And Chelsea just don't seem to be doing much of that at all. So I do have some sympathy for Lukaku. I also think this was a, a... a poor individual performance from him as well. For example, he lost all seven aerial duels in this match, and that shouldn't really be happening for him, particularly with Ruben Diaz on the bench for City. Guardiola went for Laporte and Stones for um, their ball-playing ability, and they're maybe not as physical as Lukaku is, but he lost every single aerial duel. He touched the ball just 20 times in the whole match, and one of them was the kickoff. So that tells you just how little impact he had on this game so I I am actually putting slightly more blame on Tuchel because I, th- I think we know how Lukaku can be harnessed and I don't see any compromise from Tuchel he's not really changing over the course of the season but L- Lukaku even when he's been asked to play a role that isn't his best he, he needs to do it better and this this was a really poor performance. Uh, Joe says in my notes uh, Pulisic had 69 minutes on the field in this game really? <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell if that's an attempted joke about the number of minutes he played or just about his performance. I'm going to go with the <laughs> latter. 
it wasn't it wasn't a great game from Christian Pulisic, Ryan. And I, I detailed some of the challenges that he had and, and some of the mistakes that I felt he made. He wasn't quite decisive enough when he had the ball driving forward. And maybe we'll talk a bit more about this on tomorrow's show. Maybe we won't. But I, I didn't think he had the best game. But at the same time, Graham already detailed more about Lukaku and the struggles he had in this game. I think the same thing goes for Ziyech on the left. I think the same thing goes for Chelsea's wingbacks and their double pivot. I don't think, man, I don't think any Chelsea player had the best game here. And now, to be fair to them, I want to give credit. We talked about earlier, Ryan, and you kind of led with this, Chelsea's compact defending. And they were really good at that. It is so hard to keep City at bay and to prevent them from breaking you down. And Chelsea largely did that in in structured moments. They didn't allow City to have a ton of success. Yes, City had some movements into those little man City zones they like on the outside of the boxes. They did attack those spaces and they did have chances But man, Chelsea did a very good job, by and large, of limiting Manchester City in terms of their ability to create shooting opportunities. And I think at the same time, that defensive solidity also cost them some ability to manufacture shooting chances of their own. And that then affects, and the challenges there that come from that is it affects Christian Pulisic and it affects the rest of the attacking players in the midfield group. And overall, I think it's pretty clear to see that Chelsea didn't have a very effective offensive day. We've spent a long time, sorry to interrupt, Graham, we spent a long time talking about the losing side here. Perhaps we should devote some time to the side that won the game, <laughs> maybe Manchester City, who were brilliant here. So much pressure applied. It, it, it was like one of those games where it felt like they had 12 men on the field, completely dominating. And Graham, it was Kevin De Bruyne here was peak Kevin De Bruyne in many ways, wasn't he? The way he was running at them in, in, in the final third, loads of dangerous shots. And that goal, that technique for the goal, the way he shook off Kante, brilliant stuff, Graham. Yeah, not even N'Golo Kante could, could stop Kevin De Bruyne in that situation. I do like how every time uh, De Bruyne has a good game or is an, on the winning side against Chelsea, it gets framed as his revenge against Chelsea, despite the fact he <laughs> played for them about, about 10 years ago. It's just going to define his career forever, how Chelsea let him go, which obviously it was not Mourinho's finest hour. But yeah, he, he, was, he was very good in this game. And, and I thought in general, City's attack... And the way that they... So Chelsea did limit them, their their attack, for the most part in the game. But when they did create something, City, it tended to be very well constructed. And while Chelsea's attacking three seemed pretty unsure of their purpose in the team, I don't think you could say the same of, of, of City's front four, if you're including De Bruyne in that as the supply line. Certainly their front three. I think you had Grealish getting in behind down the left. Sterling standing up, up his man on the right and then you had Foden leading the, the high press out of possession through the middle and obviously Foden played this role brilliantly in the reverse fixture earlier in the season so it wasn't surprising to, to see him play this way again and, and just time and time again Foden and De Bruyne seem to be combining um, Foden with, with the pressure, De Bruyne backing it up and when he would receive the ball obviously he, he makes something happen because that's what he does and um, I did find an interesting stat looking at the City high press. Kepa completed just 52% of his passes, and that's the lowest pass success rate of any Chelsea goalkeeper in a Premier League match this season. It tends to be up closer to, you know, in your 80%, even into your 90 early 90%. So that kind of tells you how Chelsea, sorry, how City were disrupting Chelsea playing out from the back and they and they were sort of suffocating them and De Bruyne and, and Foden played a key role in that. Well they're like that against most opposition aren't they just strangling everybody and, and, and getting and wanting the ball more I suppose. Graham also you mentioned Grealish there um, he got a little bit of criticism in this one what did you what did you make of his performance specifically? Um, 
I thought it was good enough. I, I think he, as I say, he play, he performed a purpose in this team. It's not his normal role to get in behind. You know, he's not normally the one you ask to, to stretch the pitch and provide width. He's normally one who likes to come to the ball and, and, and cut inside. So I don't think we saw the best of him, um, certainly in terms of his attacking output. But in terms of his role in the team, he had a purpose. And... All these people who are, are writing Grealish off as, as a flop, and I don't think he has been particularly great in his first season at Manchester City. I think they just need to look at Rodri, who there seems to be a track record at Manchester City of, of, of players who maybe struggle early on under Guardiola, but then they really find their role in the second season or the third season, and Rodri embodies that, and, and I think we'll see more from Grealish over the next couple of seasons. It still feels like he's he's getting to grips with the system. He's not the most natural fit for a Guardiola um, approach, but he's learning. And I think this I think this game kind of showed that there is a learning process. Yeah, Jamie Tart's going to make it a city after all. That's what you're saying there, Graham. Like it's <laughs> wonderful stuff. That analogy uh, is perfect. City- I've not even, I hadn't even considered that before, that Grealish is Jamie Tart. <laughs> he very much is in so many respects, Graham, in so many. Uh, Man City, of course, getting a 1-0 win here. They are 11 points clear of Liverpool in second place as we speak. We'll take a quick break when we come back. Africa Cup of Nations. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's talk a little bit about the Africa Cup of Nations. Every team has played twice now. Uh, Cameroon, Morocco and Nigeria are all through to the round of 16. Uh, Watching some of these games, Joe, the attendances don't look amazing in a lot of the stadiums. Some of the fields themselves don't look fantastic either. Uh, also, we had some news from uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Uh, he was diagnosed with cardiac lesions, it was reported, um, after testing positive for COVID. He was ruled out of Gabon's game against Ghana on Friday. So th- there's, there's some interesting aspects to this tournament, but lots and lots of fun to be had on the field as well, Joe. Uh, Egypt's 1-0 win over Guinea-Bissau. Let's start by talking about that. Mo Salah getting the goal there. Uh, Egypt have some points on the board in Group D. Hurrah! <laughs> Yes, they do. Mo Salah was good in this game against Guinea-Bissau. He started hot for them, hits the post early on, and then the goal he scores comes in the 69th minute. It's this left-footed volley. He's drifted over to the left side of the box, just outside the six-yard box. The ball comes down. It's this looping pass over the top, and Salah just scores a beautiful goal. So much technical quality there. And and you think Egypt have this one in the bag, and then Guinea-Bissau come down and have an absolute banger That is then disallowed after VAR takes a look at it for a foul in the lead-up to the goal. It ends up going 1-0 to Egypt in this game, as you mentioned, Ryan. But man, another game, and and, and not maybe quite as entertaining as the one we're going to talk about in detail in just a minute, but that game was really interesting and exciting. Another one that caught my eye, Equatorial Guinea, and their 1-0 win over Algeria on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Algeria, the defending AFCON champions, 
they had a lot of chances in this one, and that makes a lot of sense when you have Riyad Mars creating a bunch on the right side for your team, and that's exactly what he did this game. But Algeria could not get the ball in the back of the net. Equatorial Guinea score a goal that comes from a corner kick. The ball sneaks through towards the back post, and Esteban, one of their center backs, scores. Equatorial Guinea really fortunate to get a result, but oh man, what a result it is for them snapping Algeria's undefeated streak. That's been that's been listed as 35 games. I read an yeah. article in the Sporting News that apparently the streak should be 25 games, not 35 games. And there was this phantom loss to Morocco back in 2019 that Algeria is just choosing to disregard. <laughs> I don't know if the streak should be 25 or 35. There was a link in that article to a game recap, I believe, of that 3-0 loss to Morocco back in 2019. It did not appear to be in a competition that I had heard of before, so maybe Algeria has something going there. Maybe they don't. Either way, one of the longest win streaks on the international level in recent history was snapped by Equatorial Guinea, scoring somewhat of a fluke goal near the back post by a center back on a court. I mean, it just, Mm. AFCON is incredibly entertaining. Every single minute I've watched of this tournament, I have greatly enjoyed, and, and those two games certainly lived up to the hype. Yeah, and I think Group E, Joe, might be Entertainment Central, that being Algeria and Equatorial yeah. Guinea's group there with the one win for, uh, for, for Equatorial so Equatorial Guinea, as you mentioned. Algeria, bottom of the group with just a single point with a single draw uh, against Sierra Leone in their opening group. Uh, Sierra Leone on Sunday, Graham, playing against Ivory Coast. This one, an incredibly entertaining game. Finished 2-2. A nice fitting tribute to the Archbishop Desmond Tutu who passed away in Boxing Day. I can only imagine that's what they're intending here. Very eventful game. We basically started off with uh, Wilf Zaha uh, winning a penalty, missing it, then setting up a goal for Sebastian Hilaire with a lovely through ball. We had Musa Kamara getting an equaliser with an absolute rocket to make it 1-1. Nicolas Pepe makes it 2-1 with a lovely first touch outside the box. Then uh, Haji Kamara gets a 93rd minute winner for Sierra Leone after some fairly significant goalkeeping errors from Ivory Coast budget Sangare there, Graham. Um, what did, that, that, let's start with that goalkeeping. He tried to prevent a corner and ended up throwing the ball into the direction of his opponent. Not optimal. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult one to explain. So for anyone who hasn't seen it, a ball is, is played into the, down the channel. There's not really much competition. Stephen Cocker, who, play, who plays for um, Sierra Leone, he's kind of half chasing it down. Obviously, the goalkeeper gets there first. It should be an easy one for Singari to jump on, and he does jump on it. But then the ball sort of flips out from underneath him, and he's out of his goal, and Cocker squares it for Kamara, who then also nearly falls over but still manages to flip a finish over the the defender's leg and into the back (laughs) of the net. One potential explanation I have is that the pitch was an absolute sand pit. When Sangare jumps on the ball, it's almost like he sinks into the pitch, and that sends him off balance a little bit. And of course, it now looks like Sangare might have picked up an injury. He was stretched off, and Serge Ori finished the, the match in goal because... Of course he did. Uh, that's just the sort of thing you, ex- you expect from Africa Cup of Nations. It's quite a chaotic tournament. This, this match had everything. This was, for me, the best match of the tournament so far And that, obviously, there were four goals and goals up until the weekend had kind of been at a little bit of a premium in this, in this tournament. I thought there was a lot of quality in the way that Ivory Coast played. I mean, you look at their yeah. team on paper... They, on paper, they surely have the the strongest team in the tournament. But then you also have Sierra Leone, and they're such a they're such a great story. You know, they've, they've they haven't been at Afcon since nineteen ninety six. Of course, we all know how that country became synonymous with war and tragedy and um, and, and Ebola and and governmental corruption. And so it's it's great to see their national team and their fans having such a a, a good 
time and you look all the way through their squad, you know, there are great stories. You have a number of players, including the the goalkeeper Mohamed Kamara and the and the the first goal scorer, Musa Noah Kamara. They play in domestic football in Sierra Leone. They they play for clubs that were basically shut down during the Ebola crisis in 2014-2015. In fact, football as a whole was pretty much closed down in Sierra Leone at that time. And I was reading about how academies and youth teams they were just all disbanded, never mind being paused, they were just closed indefinitely during that time. So for something like this to flourish out of those circumstances, obviously you mentioned there they, they've also drawn um, against Algeria, it was in, the, in, the, in their first game, you know, now they've drawn against Ivory Coast. It's just uh, it's just incredible. And you see what it means to the players in some of the emotional celebrations that, that have uh, mm. taken place at this tournament. Yeah, they're definitely developing into the story of the tournament here. They're in third place in this group, looking like they could get um, a, a, a knockout place here. Bear in mind that in the third game on Thursday, Ivory Coast had to play Algeria. So at least one of those teams is going to drop points. So Sierra Leone playing Equatorial Guinea in that last game. It looks like Algeria are in a lot of trouble at the bottom of that group. But as you say, Graham, Sierra Leone, a really good story. And there was videos, you can look them up on Twitter, of um, fans in Freetown, Sierra Leone, um, going absolutely insane, dancing around and this hordes of people in these celebration videos. I recommend you look that up. It's pretty joyous. Uh, Joe, let's talk about Ivory Coast, though, who topped this group. They are at least guaranteed... Um, uh, they are advancing to the knockout stage, excuse me. They're, no, they're short of a top three finish, excuse me. But uh, as as um, as Graham said, they are a very strong team on paper. These games aren't played on paper. They're played on very bad-looking fields at the moment, Joe. So uh, what do you make of their chances? They are played on really bad-looking fields. Ryan, one thing, they are guaranteed, I believe, if my math is correct, to advance. Either way, they'll be one of the top four third-place teams, which gets you into that round of 16. So either way, Ivory Coast is going through. Ryan, I liked a lot of what I saw from the Ivory Coast, and this is going to be a real yin and yang situation because a lot of what Ivory Coast did with the ball I thought was excellent. Their team construction, Graham mentioned this very briefly, but the talent they have is insane. Sebastian Haller as a nine, we've seen how dangerous he can be for Ajax. Speed and tons and tons of dribbling ability down the wings. It was Wilfred Zaha on one side, Nicolas Pepe on the other, and, and Cornet was on the bench in this game after having started earlier in the group stage. They've got loads of talent in those spaces, And then in central midfield, you think about their front six, there's mobility and short passing and and connective tissue in that midfield three in this four through three with uh, Seri as the six and Kessier on on one side as one eight and Sangare as the other eight plays for PSV and the Eredivisie. This this really active mobile midfield trio, obviously you you wish if you're an Ivory Coast fan that Kessier had converted that penalty that Zaha draws early in this game. The scoreline almost certainly would have, well, it would have been different at that point one way or the other. But still, I came away so impressed with almost everything the Ivory Coast did with the ball, especially in that first half. You could see the intensity dipping a little bit as the second half wore on, but Zaha was incredibly dynamic moving in behind the back line. He made several of those runs in behind Kake, the, the right back for Sierra Leone in this game, to the point where on the on the goal, it's the first goal, it's the one that Haller scores in the 25th minute, Zaha has his his marker really so afraid of his movement that on this play he makes this he starts to make a run in behind and then he just checks back because he sees that his defender is giving him acres of space because he's too afraid of getting beaten in behind. So Kessier just plays the ball to Zaha, who now has tons of space between the lines. Zaha has plenty of time to pick out a ball in behind to Sebastian Hilaire, who scores with a really nice finish, and it's one nil to the Ivory Coast. And in that moment, I'm thinking this this one might be done. Ivory Coast look really dominant with the ball. Zaha has his marker on skates. Hilaire is finding space in behind. This is going really well. And it, it was going well. The Yang to the all the exciting attacking yin 
is how poor they were in individual defensive moments, right? You think about the quality they have, and they do have quality, right? There's Eric Bailly in the back line. There's Serge Aurier in the back line. There's there's quality in those spaces, but they look very vulnerable. At least they did in this game when they were back defending. There's a poor moment in the 38th minute to give Toure a look in the first half. Too passive defensively on Musa Kamara's goal in the 55th minute. And then that defensive major issue that leads with Sangare's goalkeeping mistake in the back that leads to the last-minute equalizer for Sierra Leone and the Ivory Coast dropped two points. So a real Jekyll and Hyde performance from the Ivory Coast in this game, and that kind of thing happens. Mm-hmm. I still left feeling incredibly impressed with what they bring and thinking that they're, they're probably still one of the favorites for this whole darn thing. Joe, I've got a big question for you. Uh, based on the games you've seen so far in this Africa Cup of Nations, we know that five teams from CAF, from the African Federation, get to go to the World yeah. Cup. Uh, that's, there are 54 um, nations in CAF, so you know less than 10% go. It's a big inadequacy in terms of who, who else uh, from different federations gets to go. Do you think what you've seen here makes a case for having a greater proportion of African teams at the World Cup? 100%. 100%. The qualifying process for AFCON is... Brutal, right? You look at a team like the Ivory Coast, they're not going to be at the World Cup in Qatar in 2022 later this year because they finished second in their group after Cameroon. They were in the hardest group in the, I believe that's the second round in in qualifying. Uh, and, and so they're in this really difficult spot. They finish behind Cameroon and they don't even make it to the playoffs. Cameroon, let's not forget, still isn't through. They still have to win, uh, I believe, a home and away. They have to win a two-legged playoff to make it into the World Cup. So I'm not thinking ahead to 2026 and beyond. I'm not necessarily thrilled for the World Cup to expand to 48 teams. But one upside of that, certainly, is that we get more teams from Africa involved in the biggest tournament in soccer. And after watching a lot of these games and seeing the quality that's here, that that is a silver lining for that whole expanded World Cup proposal for me. Absolutely. Graham, uh, one thing we need to talk about, Ivory Coast kits, um, the orange with the green trim. I thought it was fabulous. Mm-hmm. How did you feel? Yep, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Ivory Coast colour scheme in general. In fact, I think, uh, I've no idea where it is, but I think I do own an Ivory Coast shirt from, it might have Drogba on the back from a number of years ago. But um, yeah, I, I that was also one of the, the highlights of this game. My, my favourite thing about this game, sorry to change the subject, was the the first Sierra Leone equaliser, which the finish for that was, was absolutely incredible. It was an absolute sledgehammer. And now I'm going to have the Peter Gabriel song stuck in my head for the rest of the day. I wanna be. Oh, good. What a tune. Yeah. What a tune. Joe, Joe by the way, Peter Gabriel was in uh, <laughs> Genesis, and, and Genesis were a band, and a band is a group of people who play instruments and sing and oh, stuff. Oh, okay. And instruments gotcha, gotcha. are things that you make music on, and yeah, we can go on right. and on and on with this one. Okay. But, uh, okay. <laughs> well, we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll round up the rest of the action from the weekend, including the Spanish Super Cup. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham, and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding, because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show, and I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic, and all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a 
vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. During the ad break, Joe Lowry was regaling us with his knowledge of 80s music and Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel and Genesis. Uh, that's for another time, Joe. We'll have to start another podcast for your uh, love of 80s music. But in the meantime, we should talk about Spain. Uh, only one Liga game this weekend, Elche's 1-0 win over Villarreal because it was cup time, baby. Uh, Copa del Rey was uh, was on this weekend, Graham, and a local derby between fierce rivals Betis and Sevilla, the Seville derby. Uh, it was 1-1. We had Nebel mm-hmm. Fakir scoring an amazing Olympico. Then stuff went down, Graham. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't ideal. So as you say, Fakir scores a fantastic goal. It's one of the, the moments of the season so far in, in, in Spanish football, straight from the, the corner kick. For anyone who doesn't know, the Benito Villamarín is, is one of the most atmospheric stadiums in, in all of Spanish football. The place is rocking. And then just before halftime, eh, Juan Jordan, the Sevilla player, he gets struck with an item thrown from the crowd that I can only describe as a big pole. I'm not entirely sure what it was, but it's it's almost like a crowbar. It's it's massive, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it was a large item. I'm not sure what it was, but it looked like a sort of metal pole, as you say, a sort of crowbar thing. And he obviously um, goes down hurt, as you would. <laughs> that would that would be rather sore. And then um, because of that incident, the the match is the players are taken off the pitch. The Betis players stay out in the pitch. They want the games to con- the game to continue. Sevilla go back to the dressing room. Eventually, the match is suspended, and then they come back the the next day and play the um, the second half behind closed doors. And Betis get the the two one one with Sergio Canales scoring the winner in the in the second half. Imagine. Being a fan in that stadium, Graham, you're one, as you say, one of the fiercest rivalries in the Liga, and you're having a wonderful time. It's one-one, and then the guy next to you throws something on the field, and it gets cancelled, and the rest of it gets played out the next day with no fans. You, you gotta, you gotta feel pretty annoyed by the guy who's thrown something, right? Oh yeah, you'd be, ab- you'd be absolutely furious. And I, I haven't actually seen anything, but I presume Betis of of either tracked that person down or are in the process of tracking that person down, and they should be banned for. Um, you know, either a very long period or, or for life, to be honest, from going to, to Betis games because Joan Jordan is very lucky that he was kind of facing away from from the, from the you know, missile or whatever you want to call it that was thrown into the pitch. If that had struck him in the face or in the eye or something like that, it, you know, it could have done a lot of damage. It was a pretty dangerous moment. Yeah, and the next day, incidentally, Joe, I don't know if you caught this, but I think it was one of the Cowboys was 
almost encouraging stuff being thrown at the referees at the end of that uh, playoff game um, where there was a controversial ending to that um, Cowboys 49ers game. But uh, yeah, so not not wonderful to throw things on the field is the conclusion from that one. Why don't we talk about the Super Cup, the Spanish Super Cup, which was not in Spain. It was in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, Graham. Mm-hmm. Real Madrid winning their 12th Super Cup, 2-0 win over Athletic Club here with Luka Modric and Karim Benzema getting the goals and Eden Militao getting a straight red in the 89th minute for a handball in the box, gave a penalty. Courtois saves the day, saves the penalty. Um, mm-hmm. Was this... Graham, I, I didn't watch, uh, full, full disclosure, I didn't watch the whole game. From what I watched, it didn't feel like maximum intensity in this no. game. No, of, of the three matches that were played at the, the Supercopa this year in, in Saudi Arabia, this was the, the poorest of the three in terms of quality and also drama. Um, the other two semi-finals were, were much more entertaining. This felt like a pretty routine win for Real Madrid. Athletic Club just failed to create the, the opportunities that they needed to win the game. Nico... Uh, Williams and Anaki Williams, the the trouble that they cause Atletico in the semi-finals, they just weren't able to do the same against Real Madrid. It felt like Real Madrid had control of this match in in the centre of the pitch. Luka Modric winning the the Man of the Match award. I can't believe how good Luka Modric is at 36. He's arguably playing better for Real Madrid now than he ever has before. I remember someone on Twitter at the weekend saying that if Modric's age had a 2 instead of a 3, so he was 26 instead of 36, there would be countless clubs in for him at the end of the season. And it's true. Mm. You know, he still brings so much energy and drive and creativity to that team. And when he does eventually leave, and I don't think Real Madrid should let him leave anytime soon, I'd be signing him up to another one or two-year contract. He's playing that well. But when he does leave, I think Real Madrid are going to be a very different team without him I'd even hazard a guess that the drop-off post-Modric will be even greater than it was post-Ronaldo yeah imagine him and Krosko they're going to be relegation candidates Graham at that point <laughs> frankly yeah yeah might as well yeah go go that far why not yeah they'll why be in not? Uh, Segunda Division Indeed. Well, that was the Super Cup. Why don't we uh, turn our attentions to Italy? Uh, Juventus getting a two win over Ud- two nil win over Udinese. Western McKenney Joe rose like a salmon to double the advantage. Eleven minutes from time, uh, he looked a little bit more excited with his one celebration than Paolo Dybala did for scoring <laughs> the opener. I would say, but Joe McKenney still continuing to do pretty well with Juve. He is. He's in some pretty impressive form right now, headed into hopefully he's fit and available to the U.S. Men's National Team's trio of World Cup qualifiers at the end of January and the beginning of February. He's getting in the box. He's scoring goals. He's getting to do all the Harry Potter celebrations he wants. Life is pretty good right now if you're Weston McKinney. Why is the phrase rise like a salmon? Salmons don't head things when they jump out of the water. It's kind of strange. Ryan, I'm going to be real with you. I've never heard that expression in my life. Really? Graham, have, have I made that up? You've heard that, right? No, yeah, rise. No, rise like a salmon is a thing, but it re- relates to how salmons jump upstream, is it not? Like, yeah, you know, but... you go you go to Canada and you see like the salmons jumping in the river and the bears catch them and everything. I suppose, but they're not going like Ronaldo links out of the water, are they? They're not going and getting ahead on things. Well, no, but bears what, pause. Who who is going Ronaldo? <laughs> like, <laughs> who's leaping that that far in the animal world or even in the human world? Very true. I take it back. It's an excellent expression. All right. <laughs> Lazio got a 3-0 win over bottom place Salernitana. Uh, Rome got a 1-0 home win over Cagliari. Mourinho's first win in almost a month, that was. Uh, in, uh, Atalanta and Inter, that one finished goalless. Inter dropping points in the league for the first time in over two months. How about this, Joe? Nani getting an assist on his debut for the Venice 
fashion brand in their 1-1 draw <laughs> with Empoli. What do we think of Nani going to northern Italy? Oh, man. Can you imagine a better place to finish what I assume will be the end of Nani's career, to finish your career than Venice? People have been assuming right? that for a while, in fairness. That's <laughs> true. Nani. That is really true. Orlando <laughs> could have been that place, and it, it turned out not to be. So if I'm Nani, I am I'm thriving right now, living life in Venice. As, another key point of this whole deal is Venice and, and Venezia has clearly become a a proponent of just pillaging Major League Soccer, Gianluca Busio, Tanner Tessman, and now Nani. I mean, what what next? Are you going to take Paxton Aronson from Major League Soccer? The <laughs> list, I mean, the list just goes on and on. Apparently, Venice is the place to go if you're a Major League Soccer player. Joe, I'm going to ask you a question here, another big question. And hear me out. This is someone who loves Florida and loves Orlando. But has Nani gone from, like, the least cool place in the world, like <laughs> Jorts and Disney World, to, to like, Venice? Has, has he made the biggest switch possible in that sense, culturally? It does really feel like opposite ends of the extreme, going from Orlando to Venice, Ryan. I think you're onto something. <laughs> and once again, love Orlando. I love me some international drive and some cheese, but uh, yeah, it seems like qu- quite a uh, quite a jump that Nani has done there. Very interesting stuff, and quite a jump, uh, Graham, that Genoa have made in uh, relieving Andre Shevchenko of duties as manager. Only nine league games in charge. He's been given the boot. Yeah, I mean Genoa are second bottom at the moment, so I guess it's not entirely surprising that they they have made a decision but nine games is is no sample size to judge a manager on and I'm not sure what they expected him to do in that time frame reading some analysis of this decision from Italy there seems to be a consensus that Shevchenko who obviously is held in the highest regard in Italian football given what he did there as, as a player and also he's done a reasonably good job as a manager with the Ukrainian national team there's a consensus that he will get another opportunity at another Serie A club. Um, being sacked at Genoa is a bit like being sacked at Watford in that it's not really your fault. So I don't think it's the last we have seen of Shevchenko as a manager in Serie A. He's always got the golf career to fall back on as well. Do you remember when he became a golfer for a little while, Graham? I don't. I don't. Is that, did he try that? He tried to get on the tour and it was almost as successful as his time at Genoa, basically. So uh, Did he also try... Was he? Did he not try a career in politics as well or something? Yes, he did that too. He's a man of many moderate talents, apart from, <laughs> you know, the stuff he did at Milan, obviously. Anyway, um, Bundesliga by Munich, six point clear at the top after a 4-0 win over Cologne. Uh, bouncing back from their surprise, lost last week. Lewandowski getting a hat-trick here and Bayern scoring for the 66th game in a row. Quite an impressive time for Bayern, who, have they still won this thing, Graham? Yes. Go. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> You're not expecting any further analysis, are you? That's all we need to do. Not. No, I think we're fine there. By Leverkusen, they're in third place with a 2-0 win at Gladbach. They leapfrocked over Hoffenheim, who dropped to fourth after a 2-1 loss at Union Berlin. RB Leipzig uh, jumping up to seventh with a 2-0 win over Stuttgart. Um, perhaps, uh, you know, getting back on the right track under Domenico Tedesco. We shall keep an eye on that one. Uh, Joe, Pepe watch, game two. Augsburg, one. Frankfurt, one. Pepe started and played this game for 84 minutes. In the spirit of you, Joe, I watched a, one of those YouTube clips where it was just all of Pepe's touches, and it seemed pretty good. Yeah, I don't think he had a bad game. I'm going to do a deeper dive on Pepe's performance ahead of our show tomorrow. But I'm really encouraged that he's getting minutes. I'm not surprised by this, right? We've talked about this plenty of times in the past. Augsburg broke their transfer incoming their their incoming transfer fee record to sign Pepe, and they broke it by quite a bit. Pepe is going to play, and he's going to be a big part of helping this team not get relegated if that's what's going to happen for them at the end of this season. So I, I'm encouraged, but not necessarily totally surprised that he's getting minutes, but still good to see him going from 
30 minutes off the bench to 80-plus minutes as a starter. I think that is an encouraging sign here. Uh, beyond that, Augsburg are still challenging to watch, and we'll dive more into it tomorrow. We shall indeed. Why don't we dive a little bit into some transfer activity? We are in the midst of the January window. Uh, Graham, it seems like, as per usual, a lot of teams are keeping their powder dry until the final few hours of this window, if you will. We Mm -hmm. might get a bit more action uh, in the next week or so. Uh, Was it two Mondays time when the window will close? I think it is, if my math is correct. But um, Aston Villa. Graham. Uh, we mentioned Coutinho coming on loan from yep. Barcelona there. Luca Digne coming in as well from Everton. They've done good business, right? I think so, yeah. I mean, Luca Digne is, is an upgrade on... on um, was it is it Cash that plays at left-back? or uh, Matt, Matt Target plays at left-back for Aston Villa. Cash is, is the right-back. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think he's he's an upgrade on, on Target at left-back. I think Coutinho, if this doesn't work for him at Aston Villa, then it might be time for him to quite frankly give up because the system is perfect for him Um, Gerrard likes to have two central attacking midfielders behind a central striker and he he allows them to to drift out to the right and the left so Coutinho on that left-sided one that is the ideal position for him that's where he played his best football for Liverpool he's obviously back in the Premier League and I I, I think um, I've often argued that the, the, the fast and furious nature of the Premier League should suit his style of play, whereas the slow, slightly more ponderous style of play in Spain wasn't a good fit for him. So I'm not too surprised that he had a good debut. I'm not sure how much we can judge off that debut, given that I think he only played about 15 minutes, but he obviously scores the equalising goal. So I am expecting to see something from him at, at Aston Villa. And if the loan goes well he should do himself a favour and just stay there rather than going back to Barcelona and going through that whole cycle again where it won't work for him there. He should just stay somewhere where the system works for him and where he's appreciated. That sounds pretty smart. Joseph, any other transfers that have caught your eye? We noticed that Tecatito uh, went from Porto to Sevilla, came on in that aforementioned ill-fated derby game as well. Yeah, that's that's a big one for me. I think Tecatito is going to do really well at Sevilla, who were in need of some depth and some reinforcements in their forward line. Tecatito has familiarity with Mopetegui. They worked together at Porto in the past, and of course that's where Jesus Tecatito Corona is moving from. I think he's good enough to play in La Liga. I think he's ready for that jump up from Portugal to Spain. And I just enjoy watching Tecatito play soccer. And so any chance to see more of him, and I will probably see more of him in Spain than I would have time to see him in Portugal. So I'm excited about this move for me personally. I think I think Tecatito is going to do well, and I think he's going to help Sevilla over the course of, of this season and, and beyond, really. Even at 29, he still has a couple of years left at a really high level. I like this move a lot, guys. Uh, one more transfer-related question for both of you guys. Uh, I'll spring this on you. Newcastle United, we've seen them do- make a few moves here, but it seems like in the next week or so they're going to have to do a little bit more to dig them out of the hole they're in. Graham, do you think that we're going to see some big money moves or the kind of um, moderate and sensible moves they made so far? Um, Somewhere in between. I think there could be... I think there's going to be a lot of bids, is my, is my prediction. I, I saw this morning that they've apparently bid 30 million euros for uh, Duvan Zapata, the Atalanta striker. Um, there's talk of them moving for Sven Botman from Lille, who's been a target this whole window. Diego Carlos is another one. They've had bids for him, rejected by Sevilla. So I think they're going to be um, transfer offer FC for the next few weeks, but whether they actually get 
some deals over the line, I am less sure of. So all, all those deals that we usually see, Tottenham, Arsenal and Milan have all been linked with this player. It's now Newcastle in place of those team names. They're in that bracket now, right, Graham? Yeah, absolutely. And to, and to make a serious point about the result at the weekend, had they won that match, you know, the game that you jinxed them for, Ryan Bailey. Sorry. Um, I think I'm right in saying that they would have been out of the bottom three, at least for a day. Um, and just going to players prospective signings and saying look we're not in the bottom three anymore I think that could have been highly valuable in the last couple of weeks of the transfer window as it is they're going to players and they're they are still in that relegation zone and they're not beating teams like Watford at home and that might sway a few players and not signing for them at this particular moment in time so it could have a bit of a knock-on effect that result yeah Joe any thoughts on this uh, do you think Mbappe's coming no, I don't think any of the 100 million plus signings that could happen are going to happen for Newcastle. I don't think they're going to get Vlahovic. I don't think they're going to get anyone that's really that high profile. But I do think, based off of what Graham's saying in the reading I've done as well, they're making all these bids. I would be very surprised if they don't end up with a Wijnaldum type or a Robin Gosens type. Or a, I think they'll make one or two more moves to strengthen their squad. Whether or not that will be enough to get them out of the relegation zone, though, I don't know. Before we wrap up this episode, gents, thank you very much for your contributions thus far. It's just time for a little segment we're calling Hosts Corner, an opportunity for the listener to learn about the soccer that uh, one of our respective hosts has been watching. Uh, This week, it is Graham's turn to give us some Scottish propaganda. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I have got an update on everyone's favourite part-time team chasing promotion to the Scottish Premiership, our broth yes. FC. They got a gigantic <laughs> win at the weekend. So the context of this match, they beat Wraith Rovers away from, uh, from home 2-1. The context of this match was that our broth have lost a couple of their key players in the last week or so. The problem they're facing is that the players that were sent there on loan by some of the bigger clubs in Scotland are now being re- recalled by those parent clubs because obviously they're playing so well and those parent clubs are thinking, hang on, why are these... Why are these guys not playing for us? So Joel Nobley has returned to Livingston. He was one of their best players in the first half of the season. Anton Dowds has gone back to Falkirk. So I was maybe expecting this match at one of the most difficult away grounds in the Scottish Championship to, to potentially be the start of a slide. And yet they still managed to get the win. A fantastic win. They're now four points clear at the top of the table. 22 games played, 14 left to go. And I know it's a cliche, but every single one of those 14 games is going to feel like a bit of a one-off final. They're just ticking them off. They're just taking it one at a time. And they (laughs) put themselves in a a once-in-a-lifetime situation. So, yeah, it really feels like there's a lot of hype and excitement around that team at the moment. Graham, I have a a question for you. So for for this team, for our growth to be promoted to the first division, do they have to finish top of the table or can they finish lower? And is there some sort of playoff structure like in the Bundesliga or something like that? Like, like what is the situation here? So So if they finish first, they go up automatically if they win the title. They can then finish down to fourth and go into the playoffs. But this is where it gets slightly confusing. So third versus fourth will play each other. Then the winner of that plays the second Two. place team in the, right. in the in the championship, and then the winner of that plays the eleventh place team in the top flight. If you follow me, so yeah. there is a route where they can get through the playoffs. But I think everyone wants them just to win the title now because it'd be a <laughs> fantastic story. And uh, Graham, I understand you are currently perched on the edge of your seat. Uh, later this week, your boy Sterling Albion have a big one. 
Yeah, so, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm looking forward to it or not. So on Friday night, Sterling Albion play Rangers away in the Scottish Cup. I will be there. I've got a ticket um, at, for the game at Ibrox. Uh, it's tough going for the Albion at the moment. We really needed a win at the weekend. Um, we've won one of our last seven matches, which isn't really the form you want to be in when your next game is Rangers away. <laughs> so um, I think we will be getting... Uh, a thorough beating on Friday night. <laughs> I, th- I think it, keeping it uh, respectable will be the aim. And I Graham, mean, to Graham, paint a picture, you sorry, sorry, Jay, just to paint a picture. You you live in Glasgow. Are you? Do you live near? Are you like walking distance to Ibrox? No, and you, you're not. You're not. You're, you're quite far away from Stirling Albion, right? Yes, I am. So I used to be within walking distance of Ibrox, but not anymore. I am a suburban kid now. Uh, Graham, there's just you don't have a chance with James Sands and the Rangers team. That's the. Re- I mean, up until that deal went through, everything was going to be fine for you. But now, I mean. Yikes! It's going to be a rough one. Hey, there, there's a chance he could. I, I bet it wouldn't be. It wouldn't surprise me too much if he starts that game, given yeah. it's a cup game against lower league opposition. That would be like a, an easy way to ease him in. So yeah, I'll keep. I'll re- return with my scout and report if he does play. Good, good. Well, Graham, uh, I'll be thinking of you as I have my haggis and iron brew on Friday night. Thanks. My traditional Friday night meal, of course. Of, yeah. uh, but for the meantime, this has been the weekend review. Thank you very much, Graham, for your services thus far. Thanks very much, Ryan Bailey. I am away back to my bed, not because I'm lazy, but because I am very ill, as you might be able to detect in my voice. <laughs> well, you've been an absolute trooper uh, battling through the illness for this podcast. Thank you very much, Graham. And Joe Lowry, thank you very much to you. I've got a favour, Joe, by the way. I'm actually coming out west in March to do a marathon in Los Angeles. I'm going to need you to come out and strategically plot all the best viewing points for my, <laughs> for my party, if that's okay. I'll get, my, I'll get my best people on it, Ryan. I'll get my best people on it. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Thank you very much, Joe. And thank you, listener. We'll be back soon. Bye.